pastors from London, Nigel Bainton and Andrew Sack, published by Crossway. This one's about 12 years old. Great book. Uh, very, very helpful um, to learn how to read and understand the Bible. Of course, study Bibles, always very helpful. Commentaries, you want to read along with that. But these are some basic ones to say, okay, what should I be asking when I read the story with all the killing and all the land and everybody's got the land and you're trying to figure out, is there some, you know, hidden message here or some, you know, uh, where is that doggone prayer of Jabez? You know, you're kind of hunting for that thing, looking for some resource, but these are very helpful, so I encourage uh, you to read them. Well, okay, today we are at week 27, and we are looking at the book of Hosea. Hosea. How many of you have read the book of Hosea? Raise your hand. Okay, most, all, some. All right, I'm going to begin by asking sort of an off-the-wall question, but it will make sense later on. Okay, how many of you have seen the movie Pretty Woman? Anyone? A few of you? Hopefully the TBS edited version. Okay, give me a brief summary of what happens in that film. Rags to riches. Rags to riches. Good. Sort of a Cinderella story. Talk it through with me. Brief description. Who, who, is the, who does Julia Roberts play in that film? She's a prostitute. Uh, Richard Gere is? Wealthy guy. Drives a nice car. Uh, how do they meet and what happens? Right, picks her up at a street corner, and then uh, kind of what happens then? Yeah, she, yep, she's on the street, she meets him, she falls in love, and then she becomes a, a different person, right? Okay, how about this one? How many of you have read the book Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers? Just you, Ken? Uh, that's sort of an ongoing joke. That's a, I'm just kidding, Ken. Okay, all right. Some of you have, okay. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie version of Redeeming Love? They made a movie of it, okay. A couple of you, one of you, all right. Um, all right, now, if you, assuming that you have not, here's a quick synopsis, and I'm going to read it just kind of right from her website. She talks about this. She says, okay, California gold country, 1850, is a time when men sell their souls for a bag of gold and women sell their bodies for a place to sleep. Angel expects nothing from men but betrayal. Sold into prostitution as a child, she survives by keeping her hatred alive. And what, what she hates most are the men who use her, leaving her empty and dead inside. Then she meets Michael Hosea, a man who seeks his father's heart in everything. Michael Hosea obeys God's call to marry Angel, not Gomer, and to love her unconditionally. Slowly, day by day, he defies Angel's every bitter expectation until, despite her resistant, resistance, her frozen heart begins to thaw. But with unexpected softening comes overwhelming feelings of unworthiness and fear. And so Angel runs back to the darkness away from her husband's pursuing love, terrified of the truth that she can no longer deny. Her final healing must come from the one who loves her even more than Michael Hosea does, the one who will never let her go. Sounds like a good book. Sounds like a good film. Susan, good film? You liked it? Okay, now in both stories... One which is loosely based on the book of Hosea, and the other which is not at all based on the book of Hosea. We have a few common themes. A righteous man falls in love with an unrighteous woman. The righteous man loves the unrighteous woman with sacrificial, unconditional love. The unrighteous woman is eventually transformed by the power of the righteous man's sacrificial, unconditional love, and 
in the end, they live happily ever after. Okay? Now, that's how things work in the movies, but the question is, is that the way things work in real life? How powerful is unconditional love? How transformative is grace? How can a righteous man, someone like Hosea, forgive his unrighteous wife? How can a righteous God forgive his unrighteous and unfaithful people? And given the fact that I've only described the first three chapters of the book of Hosea, what do we do with the rest of the book? According to one commentary, the second part of Job, chapters 14 through, 4 through 14, quote, competes with Job for the distinction of containing more unintelligible passages than any other book in the Hebrew Bible. In the end, we study the book of Hosea because it presents us with one of the most clear pictures of the gospel as any other book in the whole Bible. Hosea reminds us that God loves his unfaithful bride. God loves the church. Though we often sow the wind of sin, we will not reap the whirlwind of God's judgment because Jesus reaped the whirlwind of God's judgment on our behalf on the cross, which is the ultimate expression of God's redeeming love. And so this book, like all the books that we've studied so far, is ultimately a picture of God's redeeming love for unfaithful people like us. Okay, let's get started. Authorship and date. According to the very first book of the book, very ver first verse of the book, the Lord, Yahweh, spoke these words to Hosea, the son of Beeri. Now, we're not sure who Beery was other than Hosea's dad. In Genesis 26, 34, we meet another Beery who is Esau's father-in-law, who's called Beery the Hittite. So it's possible that Hosea was a Hittite and that Beery is a traditional Hittite name. Well, who are the Hittites? Hittites, like Uriah the Hittite, you remember him? Who is he? Who is Uriah the Hittite? Who did he work for? Bathsheba's husband, worked for David, faithful man, fought in the army. The Hittites were often loyal friends of Israel who worshipped Israel's God. So we don't know for sure, but it is very possible that Hosea and his dad, uh, or at least that his dad was a Hittite. Maybe he was half Hittite and half Jewish, half Israelite. So just a guess, but that's who Hosea was. Now the name Hosea comes from the same root as the name Joshua. Both names mean savior or salvation. The Greek translation of Joshua or Hosea is the name Jesus. Uh, one of my old professors used to say that if you were to ask Jesus to show you his driver's license, the name written on the driver's license would be Joshua. That would be his Hebrew name. Yeshua, from which we get the name Jesus. Okay, now that's probably significant since Hosea is portrayed as a savior to his wife, Gomer. Though Gomer was unworthy of her savior's love, Hosea loved her and would not divorce her in spite of her unfaithfulness. Okay, historical background. We are told that Hosea wrote the book in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Now, just as a reminder, recap, who could tell me the difference between uh, Judah and Israel? What, what's Judah? What's Israel? Why are those two mentioned side by side here? A little recap of the history. Yep, Judah is the line of Jesus. What's, what, what about them is different than Israel? And what about Israel is different than Judah? Right? Israel's ten northern tribes. Judah was the southern tribe along with 
Yeah, that's right. So Judah and Benjamin are the two southern tribes. And then we have the ten northern tribes. And at a certain point in the history, they separate. Does anybody remember what, what happened? Yep, Solomon had a son. That son was named Rehoboam. And uh, Rehoboam said, uh, got, had some very bad advice. He had some friends around him, and they said, Hey, Rehoboam, here's what you need to do. You need to start cracking down on these guys, right? If, you're, if your uh, father, Solomon, ruled these guys you know, in sort of a moderate way, you need to be ten times as tough as him. And that led to a fissure in the kingdom, ironically, with a guy named Jeroboam. So Jeroboam is up north. Rehoboam is down the south. So this book takes place after those kingdoms have divided, after Solomon, uh, and before the exile. All right. Given what we know about the reigns of these kings, most scholars believe that Hosea was active sometime between 750 and 715 B.C. What significant event happened right around the tail end of that time period? Anybody here know? Right, 722, the northern kingdom is Israel is overcome by the, the Assyrians and taken away into captive. So his reign toward the tail end of that is right in that time period, or his pro prophetic career. Now that means that Hosea was prophesying at the same time as Amos, Micah, and the prophet Isaiah. They were contemporaries. Okay, during the early part of Hosea's prophetic career, Israel and Judah experienced great economic prosperity. Assyria, who was the great empire which would eventually conquer the northern kingdom, was engaged in a series of international disputes with other nations. And so, for the moment, Israel was safe. Israel was right on their northern, or Assyria was right on Israel's northern border, but for some reason they just were too busy to occupy them and take them away into captivity. They were able to prosper, Israel was able to prosper because they weren't preparing for war. Now, good news, right? The land is at peace, everybody's making money. Well, not so fast. As we will see in the book of Amos, which we'll get to two weeks, Steve is going to do that one, economic prosperity isn't always a good thing. Remember that the next time you put gas in your car. Increased prosperity led the Israelites into a downward spiral of materialism and idolatry. Flush with cash and safe from harm, they neglected the poor, they mistreated the powerless, the widows... And because of their selfishness, they incurred the wrath of God. Later in Hosea's ministry, the northern kingdom experienced great political upheaval. One commentator observes six kings were toppled in 30 years, three of whom ruled for two years or less, and four of whom were assassinated. The fifth was deposed. So they, they're constant turnover, constantly new kings. People are getting assassinated. People are getting deposed. Hosea served God during a time of stability and during a time of great instability. Now, the question to us is, which is better in terms of our relationship with God and in terms of the health of the church? Stability or instability? What do you think? What's good about stability and what's good about instability? Is there anything? Yeah. Instability, people become complacent. Okay. Why? Why do you think? You're right, but why do you think? Unpack that. Yes, why would you ask God to meet your needs if seemingly you are meeting your own needs? Right? What else? Any other thoughts? Yep, it causes us to cry out to God. When all we have is God, it strengthens our faith. Good. Tim, any other thoughts? Often the Israelites said, God's not doing anything to us, so why should we change what we're doing? Yes, we can... When God is not actively punishing us for our sins, 
then we can kind of think, well, well, maybe he's okay with this, or maybe he's not there, or maybe he's not really listening. What about stability? What are some advantages or blessings of living in a, a stable time? I guess there are certain ways which our own nation, we're kind of in both, you know, we're sort of a lot of social upheaval, but it could be worse in terms of instability. I mean, we could be living in the Ukraine or in a war-torn region of the world, a place like Yemen or someplace where there's bombings and things going on. What are some benefits of living with stability? Yes, physically, you get a good night's rest. Yeah, it gives us a place of strength from which to minister to people who are uh, in weakness and instability. Kate, do you have a thought? Good. Well, these are good thoughts. Um, yeah, go ahead. I think in both stability and instability, we have these opportunities, both actually great opportunities to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, so in stability, you can get teacher, you can share freely. And in instability, people with a great need, you can share freely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are definitely advantages evangelistically in both uh, situations. If we if we sort of frame our thinking around those things uh, in the proper way, we, we have opportunity to share the gospel with people. Good. Okay. Good thoughts. Um, how is our world or cult- culture peaceful, and how is our world and cultural, cultural situation chaotic? Any other thoughts? We sort of talked about this, but in, which, in what ways are we uh, experiencing uh, peace, and in what, what ways are we experiencing chaos? Mm-hmm. Yep, and the, the armed co- conflict that is being experienced, we're sort of insulated from it, um, though certainly that's the people that are right there, we need to remember to pray for them on the ground. Mm-hmm. About what we want to believe or know about who God is, about sexuality, about all these different, uh, you know, what, what sort of uh, economic system do we want to have? Or do we want to sort of get rid of the way we've done things previously and do things a new way? And what are the advantages of that? What are the disadvantages of that? Don? Yeah, that's a good point of, you know, that materialism kind of creates this unrest in our heart. You know, we have to have bigger and more and faster and better. And we kind of feel like if we don't have those things, maybe we don't measure up. And that's maybe something that I'm sure has always existed, but it's sort of been, you know, that on steroids now with, you know, the invention of social media and that we see so many different people doing these different exciting things. And we go, oh, goodness, if I could... My life would have meaning or I would have joy if I just had that, but I don't. And so there's a sort of low-level anxiety that we feel. Good point. Yes, Kathy.
-hmm. Yeah, that's wise word. Did you all hear that? Um, she was mentioning about, you know, the missionaries that we have and we support in the Ukraine right now. Many, many missionaries with our denomination and other faithful Christian ministries, which are experiencing great upheaval uh, because of sort of global uh, expansionist uh, desires, which has unfortunately been, that is a common thing in human history, and sadly even in our, in our own history. And so we need to pray for our folks over there for, for peace in that sense. Now, I bring this all up to discuss, I think that sometimes we can kind of, when the world is at peace, we can go, oh man, you know, it's, uh, if we weren't so comfortable, then the church would really grow. And then when, uh, and then when we're, we're chaotic, we go, oh man, if, you know, if we could just be at peace, then the church would really grow. Well, the church can always grow whether it is in peacetime or wartime, whether it is in plenty or in want. Uh, God's church can grow if we see our situation, as Hosea did, as an opportunity to make God known to talk about his gospel, to talk about his grace. Um, we don't have to fear the world outside of it, of us. We fear God, we honor God, and we serve God, who loves us and always takes care, care of us, which is a major theme in the book of Hosea. Okay, we'll keep going. Let's look at some of the contents of this book, Hosea. Now, in the first chapter of the book, Hosea, God, God instructs Hosea to marry a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, that's a lot of whoredom, and we're only in the second verse of the whole book. Okay? Woo! All right. Now, Hosea obeys God and marries a woman named Gomer. Uh, she conceives and bears a son. Golly! Come on, you knew that was coming. It's amazing that I held out this long, okay? That's the, what is it, the 23rd slide? Ah, oh, goodness, okay. Now, at this point, it's worth asking uh, whether Gomer was a prostitute in sort of the traditional sense or merely a promiscuous woman. People spill a lot of ink over this. Uh, the ESV goes with a more literal translation, which is wife of whoredom. That's literally what it says, wife of whoredom. While the NIV uh, translates this adulterous wife, that's sort of an interpretive move there by them. Now, I personally think that adulterous wife is a better translation because it communicates the intended meaning of the phrase. Others disagree. While it's certainly possible that Gomer was a prostitute when Hosea married her, it seems more likely that she was an unfaithful or adulterous wife. Initially, this text seems to indicate that she was faithful to Hosea. While their second and third children were called children of whoredom, the first child was not called a child of whoredom. The Hebrew word that we translate whoredom could certainly refer to prostitution, but it is also a term that's used to describe a variety of different uh, sexual sins throughout the Old Testament and specifically in the book of Hosea. Now, whether or not she was a paid prostitute or, or an unpaid adulteress, this metaphor of idolatry as adultery remains the same. Aren't you glad that you came to Sunday school today? Uh, you can debate amongst yourselves at lunch uh, whether or not Gomer was a prostitute, and your waitress will be very confused knowing that you came from church. Okay, now eventually Gomer gave birth to three children, two boys and a girl. All three of the children had symbolic names. The name Jezreel refers to the incident in which King Ahab, remember him, was he a good king or bad king? Bad king, worst king. He was from the house of Jehu. He killed a guy named Naboth when Naboth refused to give up his vineyard. Do you remember that story? Naboth's vineyard. The name Jezreel is a reminder, reminder that God is going to punish the house of Jehu, which is the current line of Israel's kings, for shedding Naboth's innocent blood. Okay, and that's what Jezreel refers to. The next child is named No Mercy 
Because God will not have mercy on Israel, the northern kingdom, but will have mercy on Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Okay, the ten tribes and the two tribes. Hosea and Gomer named their third child, not my people, because God was pronouncing judgment on Israel. You are not my people, and I am not your God. Hosea 1 verse 9. Now, God promised to restore them in the next very next verse, but tell that to not my people. She had the worst birthday party ever. All right, chapter 2, we have a long poem about the Lord's marriage to Israel. First, the marriage is broken, verses 2 through 13, but later it will be restored. We read about that in verses 14 through 23. In chapter 3, Hosea ransoms Gomer from slavery and their marriage is restored. This too is symbolic. Somebody read Hosea 3 verses 4 and 5. Okay, now the question is, David? Is David alive or is David dead when this prophecy takes place? He's dead. So how can the people of Israel return to David, their king? What is Hosea talking about? What's the prophecy? Say it again. His bloodline, yes. Who is the Davidic king that comes from the line of David to whom the people will return. It's Jesus, the son of David. So even in these early verses, uh, we are seeing that the ultimate restoration, the ultimate peace, the ultimate shalom, will come not through an earthly king, but through a Davidic king who will gather all of God's people together and be gracious to them. So it's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of the book can be divided up into two prophetic cycles, chapters 4 through 14. The uh, first prophetic cycle happens from chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 11. And the second happens from 11, verse 12, through 14, 9, which is the end of the book. In both cycles, the people sin. They commit the sin of idolatry. They are punished, and yet God's love for Israel overwhelms his anger against their sin. While our sin doesn't go unpunished, God is ultimately gracious to his idolatrous, spiritually adulterous people, and that is, of course, good news. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us grace that is greater than our sins. And even in the second half of the book, which is a little bit less direct than the first three chapters, that message of grace shines all the way through, threads all the way through the book of Hosea. All right, let's talk a little bit about literary style. Hosea is most known for his use of metaphor and simile. Do you know the difference between a metaphor and a simile? Okay, let me give you two and I'll show you the difference. You came for the Bible and get a little bit of English lesson today, okay? All right, the first statement is war is hell. Second statement is the Marines fought like devil dogs. Which is a metaphor? Which is a simile? War is hell is a metaphor and uh, the Marines fought like devil dogs is a simile okay aren't you glad you came to sunday school today bible english lessons there's metaphor simile all throughout the book of hosea i'll give you some examples sample of them um god is a jealous husband i'll go through these quickly because there's a lot of them god is a frustrated shepherd god is a destructive moth that's an interesting one 
God is a ferocious lion. It's a very familiar metaphor for us. God is a forgiving husband. God is a healing physician. God is a loving parent. God is life-giving dew. And God is a fertile tree. So again, all of these metaphors throughout the book. Here's some more about us. Israel is an unfaithful wife. Israel is a morning mist. Why, why might Israel be like a morning mist? What does that evoke? Fades away. Um, Israel is like a hot oven. Israel is like a silly dove. That's one of my favorite ones. You silly dove. Israel is like a faulty bow. Maybe in modern times we would say like a, like a jammed gun. You know, it, it doesn't work. Uh, Israel is like a wild donkey. That sounds like something Martin Luther would say. God's judgment is like harvesting a whirlwind. That's a very famous imagery. You know, reap the whirlwind. You sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. It's like the washing away of debris. And the yoking of a stubborn cow. All right, theological themes, marriage and covenant. In the book, Hosea's marriage to Gomer symbolizes Israel's covenant relationship to God. Now, remember, Paul makes a very similar analogy in Ephesians chapter 5, where he argues that marriage is essentially a living metaphor for the relationship of Christ and the church. Again, He's probably drawing that imagery from the book of Hosea. Now, why is marriage a helpful metaphor for our relationship to Jesus? Not a rhetorical question. What do you think? Why is that helpful? Right, so two uh, different people, you know, we are not God and God is not us. Two different people come together as one uh, in a mystical union. That's what happens in marriage and that's what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We are, in Paul's words, in Christ. We have union with Christ through faith. We do not become divine and yet God chooses to commune with us and live with us in such a, a close way that we can be said to be in him and he can be said to be in us by the power of his spirit. Do you see another hand over here? Yeah. Jack. Day to day they forgiveness. Yes, absolutely. Day-to-day uh, -day in a marriage, there's forgiveness. If you have a marriage without forgiveness, you don't have much of a marriage. It's going to be very short-lived. Good. Any other thoughts? Yes. Yeah, it's a commitment, it's a covenant. Uh, when God says, you are my people, uh, he doesn't say, until you screw up, then you're not my people anymore. You know, I, I will reject you forever. Now, he does punish us when we sin, but he, al he always returns in loving kindness and graciousness. Yes? Yeah, good. Yeah, there's, there's dowry image, uh, redemption imagery there. Good. Sacrificial. sacrificial. Okay, in what way is uh, merit, sacrificial love part of marriage? Well, you become selfless on both parts. Christ sacrificed himself for our sins. And when we, out of our love and passion for him, want to sacrifice our lives and for him, and so Mm-hmm. In the, in, when you're married, you are trying to bless this other person. You're not primarily looking out for your own agenda. Right. Uh, if, you, right. if you have, uh, if you have uh, two people living together, even if you took marriage vows and stood up in front of a church, if you're both kind of just looking out for your own interests, you don't really have a spouse. You have a roommate. Okay? You don't really have a marriage. That's not, a, that's not what a marriage is. Okay? All right, so good, good, good. All right, let me keep moving here. 
Uh, next theme is idolatry and adultery. Gomer's adultery is a metaphor for Israel's idolatry. Just as Gomer had been unfaithful to Hosea, so we are unfaithful to God. In the Bible, the penalty for adultery is death. Why wasn't Gomer sentenced to death? Why aren't we sentenced to death for our spiritual adultery against God? I was reading, uh, listening to a podcast, and there was a, a Jewish scholar of the Old Testament who was wrestling with this idea because he said, you know, he acknowledged this parallel between uh, adultery and idolatry. And he said, now in the Old Testament, the uh, people who committed adultery were sentenced to death. And yet, Israel committed spiritual uh, adultery, and yet they weren't sentenced to death. And then he kind of just sort of threw up his hands and said, well, I don't know, it doesn't make any sense. Why do you think it makes sense? Do you think it makes sense? Katie? Because the death penalty was exacted in Christ. Exactly. Exactly. Did you hear that? There was a death that occurred for spiritual adultery. But in this case, with Jesus, it was not the spiritual adulterer who died. It was the Hosea, the Yeshua, the Savior who dies in the place of the adulterous church. Okay? All right, next theme. Redemption and restoration. In the story, Hosea redeems Gomer, and as a result of that redemption, she is restored to her rightful place as Hosea's bride. How does Jesus redeem us? How does Jesus restore us? Could we be restored without redemption? Could we be restored without a price being paid? Who pays it? Jesus. Now, the question is, to put it more simply, sometimes people will say, well, why can you know, God just sort of you know, wave his hands and say, well, you are forgiven. You know, what's, what's this uh, business about Jesus having to die on the cross? And you know, why would God demand that? He's, because he's just, okay? In what sense is he just? You're right, but keep going. Good, good. He, he is the Hosea in the story. Jack? Justice for people that hurt. Say it again. It's justice for people that hurt. Okay. Expand on that. So in order so you're making the point that in order to enact justice there is a, usually a cost on behalf of the person who is enacting that justice. Good, good point. I think in all of this, I like to think uh, sort of a simple, oh yeah, Katie, go ahead. Yes, good point. A simple analogy that I like to use, and I hope it's helpful, it's helpful to me, is um, th there, 
a price, a redemption price has to be paid every time a wrong is done. It's not that Jesus uh, is universally true. Here's the analogy I say. When I, we lived in our first house, the street was very narrow, and my across-the-street neighbor's uh, mailbox was right behind our driveway, and I lived in constant fear that I was going to back up into that guy's mailbox. It never happened, but I was always a little bit worried about it. Now, if I were to run over that guy's mailbox and smash it and destroy it, someone has to pay for the mailbox. Either I have to pay for the mailbox because I'm the one who broke it, or my neighbor says, I forgive you, and in forgiving says, I will bear the cost of repairing the mailbox. Or if he says, I'm not rebuilding the mailbox, then he pays the cost of never getting mail again. You see? But when a wrong occurs, there's always a price that must be paid. And we have offended God. We have sinned against God. God can either say, I demand that you pay the price for your sins. Or he can say, I will pay the price for the sins. But in any case, in order for restoration to happen, a price needs to be paid. And the good news is that Jesus, the ultimate consummate Hosea, has paid the price. Good. All right. Keep an eye on the clock here. Ken? Okay. That's right. Uh, Hebrews, I believe. Right, Dave? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It's in the book of Hebrews, but I'm forgetting where it is. Yep. Yep, good, good, good. Yes? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, either you will pay the price for that chaos or you will reap the whirlwind for your sins or Jesus reaps the whirlwind on the cross. Yeah, 100%. That is 100% correct. Good. All right, I'm going to keep an eye on the clock here. We're going to go to the next theme. All right, failure of leaders. Now, in the second part of the book, we're told that Israel's leaders led her astray. We're told that the prophets were unfaithful. We were told that the priests were unfaithful. And we were told that the kings are unfaithful. How important is it to have faithful leaders today? In churches, government, business, that sort of thing. How important is it to have good, godly men and women of integrity sort of uh, leading uh, in our society? How important is that? It would be nice. It would be nice. Mm-hmm. It would be helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, the whole system collapses if we have ungodly leaders. And uh, that's true in a sort of geopolitical sense. It's certainly true in the church. If the elders and the deacons and the pastors are unfaithful, ungodly men, then the whole thing kind of just falls apart. All right, uh, ultimately, these failures contrast with Jesus, who is a perfect leader, the perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king. So the parallel is that 
All three of those offices, which were very critical in the nation of Israel, prophet, priest, and king, they're unfaithful, they lead Israel to destruction and exile. Jesus, who is the perfect prophet, remember, he is in the beginning the word, the word was with God, the word was God, so Jesus not only speaks God's word, he is God's word. And we have Jesus as the priest who lays down his life for the people. We mentioned the book of Hebrews earlier. Uh, in the Old Covenant, there's sacrifices ongoing day after day after day. But the blood of bulls and goats is not enough to remove the stain of our sins. Jesus is the perfect high priest, not only pleading our case before God. We'll see that in the high priestly prayer in about a month after Easter. But he also lays down his life as a sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect king. Not only is he the, you know, the great exalted king seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he's a king who serves. He bends down. He washes the disciples' feet. He says, just as I have done for you, you also are to do for one another. The servant king. So Jesus fulfills all of these roles that in the book of Hosea are leading to destruction. Their failures brought exile. Jesus' faithfulness brings his people back home. So we are returned from the exile through Jesus, our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Next theme is the power of hope. Throughout Hosea, we are told that God will not abandon his people. Consider these texts. Somebody read Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9. You can read in your Bible or read it on the screen. Power of hope. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not. Somebody read this one about the power of hope. Hosea 2, 14 and 15. Uh, next one of hope from Hosea 14, 1 through 4. Somebody read that for me. Power of hope. that beautiful just the hope that in spite of all of our sin god remains faithful he remains loving he remains merciful to us okay looking forward to jesus and we'll close with this as we've seen jesus is the fulfillment of the book of hosea though the church is an unfaithful bride jesus has married us we read that in ephesians 5 jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because of Jesus, we have hope through the resurrection of the dead. So you see, um, God's covenant faithfulness, redemption, the price being paid, and then hope. Echoing the imagery of Hosea, Peter writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Because of Jesus, 
our faithful husband, we can now cry out with Hosea and the Apostle Paul, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Amen? All right, um, we're about done, and I didn't leave much time for questions. I apologize. One or two thoughts, one or two questions, and we'll wrap it up. Anybody? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so they all pay for their sin, right? But in this death, you know, sin is bad, right? So isn't there mm-hmm. more? There's more there. Oh, for sure, like yeah. Individual sins. Mm-hmm. Someone argues, well, everybody dies for their sins, so we don't need Jesus to die for them. They've already died for them. Mm. The issue is that sins are bad. True. There's the issue of the resurrection, and then there's the issue of um, can. Uh, can a single human death uh, satisfy the justice of, of God? And I think the answer is no, because when we die, this is sort of an enactment of the curse, and we, we die for our own sins, but there, then without God intervening, there's no hope of redemption. There's no hope of resurrection, as you said, there's no hope of everlasting life. I'm not sure if I'm totally getting at, uh, at your question answer, but I I see where you're going with it. Do you, it's more like a collective, like the, the people of Israel. You know, mm-hmm. Like they were sinning. He didn't, he didn't abandon them. He wasn't out there alone sinning. He thought, I'm not going to die. Yeah. Maybe the Israelites, like Judah, like you said, mm-hmm. wasn't out there. Good. Yeah, good thoughts, Gary. Appreciate it. Anything else? Well, hey, I hate to cut it short, and uh, there's always more to talk about it. Read the book of Hosea. It's great. You, if, you're not read, if you don't have a Bible reading plan right now, or you're just kind of jumping around, pick up the book of Hosea. Read it. It's beautiful. It, it's such a great book. I promise you, you will see Jesus so clearly in the book of Hosea. Amen? All right, guys, let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are alive and active, and that you speak to us through the pages of Scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would use the Scripture to kill anything in us that is proud, arrogant, uh, abusive, uh, violent, and that you would birth in us peace and love and understanding and mercy. Lord, may we be merciful to others in a way that in some small way reflects the mercy that you've shown us. Thank you for your servant, Hosea. And we thank you for your servant, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.